Um, our day is on apologetics. That doesn't mean we're going around saying sorry all day. This is about defending and explaining our Christian faith, particularly when it comes under attack. And of course, many of you have read of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, who are the new <coughs> um, one of whom may know differently by now. Um, but today we're going to engage with some of that critique of Christianity and how Christianity responds. And it's good to welcome Peter S. Williams to join us today, and he's going to be leading our sessions. And it's also good to welcome Terry with his other hat on. Terry, of course, is a reader in the diocese, as we all know, but he also manages the Christian bookshop. And he has brought along some books, some general books, but also some of Peter's books as well. And there are a few publications and many copies over here. In fact, I'm going to chat to Peter now. Um, we can talk about uh, some of those. Just some general housekeeping. If the fire alarm goes off, please don't know. But if it does, we will go downstairs in an orderly fashion, as they say, and out the front door or the nearest exit that gather in the quad on the lawn. Uh, lunch will be served in the refectory downstairs, just below us, at half past twelve, and uh, we'll be seated in the refectory for lunch, and there's always a variety and plenty of food. It'll be a, a sort of plated buffet uh, meal. Please just you know, enjoy the hospitality um, of the day. And then later in the day, we'll have a little break for um, some more tea and coffee and biscuits. We'll aim to sort of bring things to a close around three o'clock, and there'll be a final sort of open question and response session with Peter. Um, and basically, when we've asked the questions we want to ask, by half past three, then we'll bring the day to a close, and hopefully, then we'll feel challenged, resourced, and um, able to go out and perhaps, you know, defend the faith that we hold more clearly and more effectively as Christian ministers uh, and as God's people in our parishes and deaneries and dioceses. So in case you don't know who I am, I'm Father David Sheen, I'm the Warden of Readers in the Diocese of Flander and Parish Priest of Pugwine and Shandari Ronda, which is near Pontypridd, if um, you need to know. And <coughs> Peter's come from Southampton, he had a, an epic train journey, and I had a, a lovely evening listening to jazz in the car park at Cardiff Central Station for a couple of hours last night, and as we waited to meet each other so I could bring him here, he's been staying here overnight, and he's going on to some friends um, later on, and bizarrely some mutual friends that we didn't realise uh, we had. After each session, or during each session, there will be some time for questions, Peter, about the immediate content, but if you want to just make notes about any general questions and perhaps at a later point in the day when we come to our Q&R, we can explore those um, as well. If there are any questions about the building or facilities, please just come and ask me at any point um, throughout the day. Um, nobody's informed of any particular or extreme dietary needs, um, and it's an open buffet, so just please, obviously, if you do have some dietary needs, just if you need to ask, I can check with the kitchen uh, about what's on offer. So I'm just going to open with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to have a little chat with Peter as so we're introducing uh, to the group. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this day. 
We ask your blessing upon us and particularly upon Peter as he leads us and enables us to think more deeply about our faith and its explanation and defense to a wider society. Help us to think deeply, reflect deeply, and learn from this day that our ministries in our various places will be enhanced. Bless us, we pray, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Peter, do you want to come and join me for a quick chat? Grand. So, Peter, good to welcome you here today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And um, perhaps you'd like to tell um, those who've gathered a little bit about your, your background and what you've okay. been doing in terms of perhaps your personal background, mm. church background, and sort of education. That would be good. Right, OK. Uh, well, Mae West once said she used to be as white as snow and then she drifted, didn't she? <laughs> um, I, I was brought up in a, in a Baptist church in Portsmouth, uh, and then I went off to university and drifted, as they say. No, I, um, I got involved in, in various uh, Christian unions and uh, chaplaincy groups and different churches and things. Uh, I spent uh, six years at various universities um, studying primarily philosophy, and then I ended up uh, working for a CV church in Leicester as a student worker uh, for three years, uh, running sort of student alpha groups and missions and so on, uh, before moving down where I live now uh, to Southampton, uh, where I uh, wear a number of different hats, but, but specifically I'm in Southampton because that's where uh, the Christian educational charity that I work for, uh, called the Damaris Trust, uh, are based. And through them, I'm primarily involved in their schools' work, going around uh, state schools in the country, uh, taking 126 formers for a morning, uh, thinking about how arguments work and what they think about the existence of God, or um, thinking about uh, free will and moral responsibility, but how does that tie up with your broader world view and understanding of reality, getting them to think and discuss and argue with one another, uh, about the big sort of spiritual, philosophical, moral issues of life, the universe, and everything uh, off the back of my uh, training in philosophy. Good. Um, perhaps uh, it's very interesting. Damaris Trust, Damaris, or Damaris as I might be prone to say in the Greek, um, was an Athenian lady, I'm sure we all remember in the Acts, who um, heard the word and was converted. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where, of course, the Trust gets its name. Yes. And could you tell us a bit more about the work of the Trust, sure. perhaps? Um, and specifically because um, that's at the end of the, the passage in Acts chapter 17 where Paul had addressed the, uh, the Epicurean and Stoical philosophers uh, in Athens. And uh, one of the things you find Paul doing there, because he didn't have uh, the common ground of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, which he used to use to argue for the, the Messiahship of Christ and so on when he went to the synagogue, what we find him doing in Athens is quoting from pagan poets and playwrights in his speech at the Areopagus. Um, so in, in contemporary terms, Paul is, 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 is uh, quoting from you know, the latest film at the cinema, the latest number one hit in the hit parade, uh, in order to glean those, those bridges of common uh, understanding uh, to try and move people from, from where they are and a, and a sort of thought and worldview that they can grasp hold of uh, and to help them move towards an understanding of, of Jesus and, and who he is. Um, so Damaris is particularly interested in the engagement uh, between um, the, the Bible, uh, the gospel, and uh, contemporary popular 
culture, and um, particularly in the film industry. And we um, produce, over the last couple of years, we've, we've very much got into a relationship with uh, the film companies, distributors, producing the official community resources for films that are out at the cinema. Um, uh, that can be used by various community groups, including, but not limited to, the church, using uh, those materials to have uh, communal discussions about big issues that are raised by contemporary cinema. Excellent. I mean, you've been involved, I know, um, in debates. You've been in Cambridge yep. University with William Lane Craig, who's an eminent uh, philosopher mm-hmm. as well, uh, defending um, Christianity against some of its uh, more learned critics. Mm-hmm. And um, also you've been involved, I know, with uh, Premier Christian Radio and with Justin Briley and the unbelievable um, show. And perhaps you'd like to talk a little bit about that public sort of defence? Yeah, sure. It's, it's been an area I've been getting into a little more in the last couple of years, sort of public uh, debates and so on. Um, uh, earlier on, about, I was in Cardiff actually having a debate last time I was here. Uh, against one of my old philosophy professors from my department there and the, the Christian Union and the uh, Atheist Society at the university worked together to put on the first um, public debate on the existence of God at Cardiff University, um, packed out the, the main hall of the student union and you can watch that online on YouTube as well if you should care to, to track that down. So it's certainly been an area that I've, I've been um, wanting to get into, that, that sort of public uh, defence and debate uh, about things of gospel. Yeah. Good. And obviously, you know, we've got some books over there. Yeah, know, indeed. So maybe you'd like to just briefly... Uh, what have we got? Some of your work. Uh, sure, oh, OK. Got, um, <laughs> a Faithful Guide to Philosophy. Right, which I was playing a little bit of the uh, one of the uh, uh, videos uh, that was up that was up here earlier was an introduction to. That's a sort of explicitly Christian introduction to philosophy. We've got understanding Jesus. Understanding Jesus, uh, which looks at um, well, it's an apologetic for the Christian understanding of Jesus, framed in terms of what did Jesus think about spirituality and the role that he thought he should play in our spirituality. And the reasons that Jesus and the earliest disciples gave for thinking he was right about that, basically. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, the one that put me on to you in the first uh-huh. place, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, uh, which uh, I will unpack <laughs> uh, some of in the courses this morning. This year, of course, is the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death. Uh, I'm privileged to be involved uh, with Westminster Institute and Westminster Abbey. Uh, next week, and they're unveiling a, a, a memorial to C.S. Lewis in Poets' Corner uh, in Westminster Abbey and having a number of lecturers and a panel discussion and so on, various uh, events around that. Um, this is a good year for 50th anniversaries because it's the Doctor Who 50th anniversary uh, as well. Um, C.S. Lewis died the same day that JFK was assassinated and Aldous Huxley died as well. Um, you can get a fascinating book by an American Catholic philosopher called Peter Kreft called Between Heaven and Earth, in which he has sort of in, the, in heaven's waiting room, as it were, this, this dialogue in the afterlife between C.S. Lewis, JFK, and Aldous Huxley, uh, which is fascinating. Excellent. That's really good. That gives us a really good um, feel, I think, for what you've got to offer today. So just to sum up, perhaps you'd just like to, to lead into your first session, also just summarise uh, what the sessions around today are going to be about. Sure. Um, and then I'll let you get on with the Okay. So this morning we're going to be more specific in our focus, looking um, at responding to the new atheism 
particularly through the lens of uh, C.S. Lewis and, and showing how C.S. Lewis is, is relevant to that uh, discussion today. Um, and then after lunch, we'll be looking more generally speaking about understanding uh, the nature of apologetics. I'm, I'm glad we've already put in that it is not about apologising. Uh, we will see more where that uh, language comes from in the Bible. And um, I'll be applying uh, the, the theory of spirituality uh, that you get in the Understanding Jesus book to, to thinking about the task of apologetics and seeing it in a more sort of holistic way uh, than simply the, the rational argumentation side of it. Although, of course, that is uh, essential, but there is more to it than that. So I'm, I'm going to try and put it in a more sort of holistic uh, framework, but we'll move from the more specific um, sort of hot potato of, of the day, which is the, the New Atheist Movement, uh, for whom I'm incredibly thankful, in a sense, that they put the, the public discussion about God back on the table. Um, it's a bit of a backfiring move for the atheist side to make, I think, um, if you can uh, keep that public discussion uh, at the level of reason and evidence rather than getting dragged into the, the bad rhetorical uh, moves that tend to characterise their presentation of their uh, viewpoint. So I hope to uh, steer clear really, of um, bad use of rhetoric today. We'll, we'll look a little bit this afternoon at good use of, of proper rhetoric. Um, but this morning's sessions, um, I'm going to look at what I think are four points of self-contradiction uh, within the general um, uh, views put out by the new atheism that Lewis in particular would pick up on. Uh, so that naturally breaks down into four sections. Uh, after each section, I, w- I will pause for question and discussion of that section before we move on uh, to the next one and we'll have a coffee break in the middle and so on. So I hope we can go at a fairly relaxed pace. Um, Some of it uh, might be uh, stretching. Some of it you might feel that I'm I'm speaking down or speaking over. It's very difficult to to know when you're addressing an audience that you've not met before. Uh, It's an audience of of mixed uh, backgrounds and so on. Um, So I apologise. If I don't make something clear stick a hand up and say, what does that mean? You've not made that clear because that's my job to make things clear. And if they're not, then I'm not, I'm not doing my job properly and you need, you need to, to help me to do that. Um, if you feel like I'm speaking down to you at any stage, I apologise. So let's uh, get that framing out of the way. Um, let's just uh, do a little bit of self-advertising before we get started as well. There's a website address up there for my main website uh, www.pdrswilliams.com and you can find on there uh, particularly uh, my podcast channel I am uh, recording myself today for that podcast channel um, uh, I do have the possibility of going through and editing out all of the Q&A times should you wish me to uh, but let me know by the end of today uh, whether I have to go through and edit out those Q&As and just put myself up there whether you're happy uh, for me to include um, everything, let me know, and I will. Um, your wish is my command. <laughs> so, it was <coughs> an article in a Wired magazine that actually came up with this phrase, the new atheism. Um, and just, of course, as there are different uh, types of Christian, different types of Christianity, um, it's important to grasp hold of the fact that there are, of course, different types of 
sceptic or atheist or agnostic indeed, um, and that there are in-house discussions between atheists about the best way to go about being or spreading atheism, just as there are in-house discussions between Christians as to the best way to go about being and spreading Christianity. And I suppose we now have to distinguish the the new or neo-atheism, as it's sometimes called, from, well... From what, old atheism? That might be a little bit pejorative. Um, classical atheism, uh, I think I'd uh, use that phrase. Uh, but the new atheists, uh, no heaven, no hell, just science, as the headline says here. That's quite a good uh, s- uh, summary of that. You know, we have a naturalistic worldview. There's nothing supernatural, none of that uh, supernatural mumbo-jumbo stuff. And we know that that's all mumbo-jumbo because we follow science. And science is the way to know everything about everything rationally. And if science doesn't give you the answer, then it's probably a stupid question. That's basically, uh, in a nutshell, Gary Wolfe, who wrote this article, said the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion's not only wrong as a mistaken intellectual position, it's evil. It's, it's, it's a public evil. It's bad for individuals and it's bad for society and therefore we need to fight against it uh, in the name of the public good. And we'll see uh, the root of where this uh, thought comes from. So it has, it has on its uh, rhetorical side, as it were, a certain rhetorical stance, a certain you know, come to us for the defence of Enlightenment Western civilization against these know-nothing, um, uh, you know, rube religious people who are, um, you know, down on science and fly planes into buildings uh, because of their religious beliefs and so on. And it was indeed, particularly, I think, the 9-11 attacks that a num- number of New Atheist writers have sort of said, that was the last straw, uh, we can no longer have this sort of laissez-faire, well, you've got an intellectually mistaken position that I'm happy to argue against, you know, live and let live. We can't do that anymore uh, because religion is is becoming too much of an evil in the world and we've got to take a stand against it. So there's a certain sort of moral crusade uh, behind uh, the sort of uh, self-image of new atheism. Now, uh, Oxford University, interestingly enough, is the academic powerhouse of the New Atheist uh, movement. You can see here various names which may or may not be familiar to you. All of these are, uh, or were, in Christopher Hitchens' case, uh, neo-atheist writers, representatives. uh, Peter Atkins, chemist from Lincoln College. Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous of the New Atheist writers. His book, um, The God Delusion, course, best-selling book, uh, uh, Daniel Dennett, a philosopher, um, A.C. Grayling, British philosopher, Christopher Hitchens, who was a journalist. Um, indeed, amongst English-speaking, there are a few kind of French and uh, neo-atheists, but amongst English-speaking athe- neo-atheists, only Sam Harris, who's an American neuroscientist, and the physicist Victor Stenger didn't study at Oxford. And Stenger has held a number of visiting positions on faculty. So there's this big association between the New Atheist Movement and Oxford University. And when you look into it, you notice that 
People like A.C. Grayling, for example, he received his doctorate of philosophy from C.S. Lewis's old college, Magdalen, under the supervision of uh, P.F. Strawson and A.J. Eyre, famous atheist philosophers of Lewis's generation. <laughs> so they're one intellectual generation down the road from Lewis, and they did their doctorates under professorial colleagues of Lewis, whom Lewis would have been rubbing shoulders with at places like the Socratic Club that he organised um, in Oxford. We know A.J. Eyre spoke at, for example. Um, Daniel Dennett uh, received his uh, DPhil under Gilbert Ryle, another professorial colleague of Lewis's at Oxford. And when you look at the kind of thought world of early to mid-20th century analytical philosophy, you suddenly understand where these new atheists are coming from. They're continuing on in a sort of mode of philosophical thinking about the world that died by about 1950 within the philosophy world. Um, but they haven't cottoned on to that because they basically haven't read any philosophy since about 1950 <laughs> or uh, any views um, that uh, don't have that sort of early 20th century imperture uh, upon. And as a consequence, um, they're not really up on the, cu- the current discussion in philosophy of religion and whatever, and they uh, frequently commit rather easy-to-spot easy philosophical mistakes. The, the prime philosophical mistake... Uh, being making a self-contradictory statement. It doesn't get any worse in philosophy than having a self-contradictory viewpoint Um, because a self-contradictory viewpoint just cannot be true. Um, So if I tell you that I am incapable of um, using any words of the English language, you will know immediately and intuitively that that's wrong and indeed must be wrong because I just used some words of the English language to tell you that I can't use any words of the English language. Okay. Um, none of us are worried that when we leave the room to go down to lunch, we might trip up over one of those square circles that litter the world. You know, you're going to stub your Oh, I'm going to, oh, I must look out for those square circles or you could fall over one of them. Uh, no, because we all intuitively immediately grasp the very concept of a square that is a circle is just incoherent, it's self-contradictory, it's, it's, they're mutually exclusive definitions of things, um, and there can't be any such thing. And even God can't make a square circle. That's not because he's not omnipotent, it's because, as C.S. Lewis says, nonsense doesn't stop being nonsense just because you put God can before it. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to highlight uh, with Lewis four points of self-contradiction within the, the generality of new atheist views. And of course, there's, there's distinctions within new atheists. I don't want to paint them all with the same brush, but inevitably I'm going to do some of that in saying this is generally what they say. I'll give you examples of specific new atheists saying that, but they might not all agree with one another. So I think we'll see that they have a self-contradictory view of faith and knowledge. Faith and knowledge of freedom and responsibility, including uh, intellectual responsibility, um, 
That'll be the hardest bit of the day, philosophically speaking. After that, it's all downhill. Don't worry. Um, a self-contradictory view of ethics, and finally, a self-contradictory view of Jesus. So, let's begin with faith and knowledge. Um, as I've indicated, the new atheists are dominated by a, a kind of um, scientistic, that's not scientific, but scientistic understanding of knowledge, of how we know things. They're basically scientific, Im- empirical ways of knowing things is the be-all and end-all of knowing about reality. Um, and it's a view that had an extreme influence uh, in the sort of 1930s and 40s, particularly through atheist philosophers like A.J. Ayer, associated with um, the logical positivist movement, which we can go into in Q&A if you want to. Um, but as a holdover from that movement, the new atheists kind of had this idea um, of scientism being the right way to think about knowing things, and it attributes exclusive or, or near-exclusive rights over knowledge to empirical scientific verification. <laughs> so Lewis, uh, in my favourite Lewis essay, De Futilitate, says this. He says, it's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought does not. On this view, when we say the universe is a space-time continuum, we're saying something about reality. Whereas if we say that um, men ought to have a living wage, we're only describing our own subjective feelings. So this scientific approach to knowledge immediately sets up the, 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 the widespread idea that there's a distinction between facts and values, which is a distinction that just assumes that values are not factual and that facts are of no value or no factual value, therefore. And that is um, a distinction that that lies very much at the heart of a modernist worldview, a scientific worldview. Well, Lewis observes that on this scientific view, the world of facts without one trace of value, the world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood, justice or injustice, confront one another, and no reproachment, no friendship is possible. And he writes very movingly about when he he was an atheist, how there was a stage in life where he felt that everything he thought was real was meaningless, and everything that gave him a sense of of meaning and and hope in the the myths of the, the ancient Norse gods and so on he thought to be unreal and untrue. Uh, and for Lewis, coming, to, coming to, to first theism and then to Christ was what sort of bridged this divide, which he came to see as a, a, a false divide, and which, even as an, an atheist, before he made that move then into uh, a sort of theism and, and into Christianity, he rejected. So... Lewis was the classical kind of atheist, as we'll see. He was the classical kind of atheist raised on reading um, uh, Lucretius, uh, ancient Roman uh, atheist poet, and so on, and did not buy into this kind of fact-value distinction that was all the rage with people like A.J. Eyre, who then influenced today's neo-atheists. 
Um, Victor Stenger, I mentioned, he, he is, is sensitive to this criticism of, of scientism. He complains, critics accuse new atheism of scientism, which is the principle that science is the only means that can be used to learn about the world and humanity. They cannot quote a single new atheist who said that. Well, not in those precise words, maybe, but what would you think about a writer who, uh, who enunciated the following views? He said... Science does not require, nor does it use, any metaphysics. So science can get on quite happily without philosophy. Science is a belief in the presence of supportive evidence. That's what science is. That's how you know things. You have evidence. While faith, by complete contrast, on the other hand, is belief in the absence of supportive evidence. That's just what it means, you know, plumping blind before faith is a redundant qualifier as any dictionary will tell you oh no they don't but never mind let's ignore dictionaries um, surely you would think any, any person who, who held these views is someone who has a scientific view of knowledge let's say we have science that doesn't need philosophy um, science means uh, you know, believing things with evidence and faith is all about not having evidence when you believe stuff. That is a scientific understanding of, of knowledge. And these are all quotes from Victor Stenger <laughs> in his book The New Atheism, Taking a Stand for Science and Reason, you see. Um, so he's sensitive to the, to the charge. He says you can't... Uh, uh, <laughs> you can't uh, show that any new atheist actually holds that view, um, but he clearly holds it himself. Or um, atheist philosopher Alex Rosenberg um, says, we trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. That is why we're so confident about atheism. In his book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality. Or Peter Atkins, in his book On Being, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Clearly, new atheist writers hold this view. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, beliefs fall into one of two categories. You know, there are two kinds of people, people for whom things fall into two kinds of people and people for whom they don't. Uh, Dawkins is one of the people for whom people fall into two types of people. Um, he says, on the one hand, there is proper evidence-based belief. The only good reason to believe something exists is if there's real evidence. I'm not going to go through the whole quote, but he basically says it always comes down to our empirical sensory data directly or indirectly, um, maybe extending it through a telescope or extending it even more through having some sort of scientific model that we can then test, verify or falsify against things that we can sensorially detect through our telescope or just with our eyeballs, as it were. Ultimately, it always comes back to our senses one way or another. On the other hand is blind faith. Faith is, definition, believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith. That's just what it means. Neotheists have done a wonderful job of convincing society that that's what faith means. It is an entirely unbiblical definition of faith. Um, but they have um, grasped, shaped the, the public understanding 
of that word. I, I um, try and remind myself to steer clear of the word faith when I'm talking with non-Christians as much as possible because they will hear blind faith. So I talk about trust. Um, and saying that you trust someone or something uh, still leaves completely open, of course, the question of do you have good reasons for your trust or not? Maybe it's well-placed trust, maybe it's not. But trust does not mean misplaced trust. Uh, um, as they have convinced people that faith means misplaced faith. Um, Lewis. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. This is a much better definition of faith. It is not an opposition between faith and reason, but faithful reason and temptation. Fighting against it. Um, Wonderful quote. I love the way he phrases this. He says, now I'm a Christian. I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. (laughs) It says, when we exhort people to faith as a virtue... That is, to the settled intention of continuing to believe certain things, we are not exhorting them to fight against reason. If we wish to be rational, constantly, we must pray for the gift of faith, that is, the power to go on believing, not in the teeth of reason or evidence to the contrary, uh, but in the teeth of lust and terror and jealousy and boredom and indifference, that which reason, authority or experience together have have delivered to us to be believed in. He has this wonderful illustration of saying, you know, look, I know that modern anaesthetic works. Does that mean when I'm lying on the operating table and I can see all these guys around me in face masks and things and a table full of like syringes and knives and a saw ooh that's a bit jagged you know (laughs) and the face mask is coming towards me does that mean that I'm not going to have a moment of panic where I think I'm going to get out of here and he says faith is staying on the table you know not because of I've got a lack of evidence, but precisely because I'm going to continue believing what I've got good evidence to believe, despite the fact that I'm having a, a, an, an, an irrational panic about it <laughs> that would tempt me not to trust modern science you know, in this matter. Lewis would also note that Dawkins uh, have far too narrow an understanding of knowledge. It's like, you know, here's knowledge... And here is the New Atheist Book of Knowledge. It's like one little bit of it. Um, Think of it this way. Uh, the, The scientistic demand that every rational belief must be justified by evidence. And we saw several quotes from them saying this. That demand is a self contradictory demand. 
it entails an infinite regress that you can never fulfill. If you say, um, should I believe A? Claim A. So, well, there will be blind faith unless I had some evidence for it. Then it's proper evidence-based belief. Um, is there some evidence for A so I can believe it rationally? Well, let's call that evidence and the, the fact that it really does support believing A, B. Okay? But, of course, I shouldn't believe anything. can't believe anything rationally unless I've got evidence for it. So, B looks like it might be evidence, might really be real, and that it might support A. But I shouldn't believe those things unless I have evidence for my beliefs. Otherwise, my beliefs are irrational. So, I need, I need C. Some evidence for the evidence for my belief. But should I believe C, that it really is evidence, I'm not being deluded, it really does support B? Well, my belief would be irrational if I didn't have some evidence for it, so let's call that D. I'm going to be a long way away, eventually, if I keep down this path. It's literally impossible to argue for everything you believe. It can't be done. Um, and yet we know that we do believe some things and we believe them rationally so it must be possible to rationally believe things despite it being impossible to have evidence favouring everything that you believe you see Um, it's like sawing off the branch you're sitting on saying I'm never going to believe anything until I have evidence for it like, well, then you, you just, that's just not going to work. Um, this claim's also, at a sort of easier to see level, just open to obvious counterexamples. If you say the only rational way of believing anything is, is to do with empirical evidence, in particular, of course, scientific empirical evidence, well, what about knowing that torturing small children for fun is wrong? Um, well, I think that's something I know. Okay, um, I think I know that. <laughs> How do I know that? What empirical evidence do I have for that? None. You couldn't have empirical evidence for that. Um, I mean, you could certainly have all sorts of gory empirical evidence to do with if you treat certain organisms in a certain way, they stop functioning in the way that they used to and start you know, screaming a lot more whatever but how do I know that inflicting pain is bad there's a difference between making a scientific observation, a description of how reality is and making a moral judgement about how it ought to be or ought not to be um, science describes but it can't prescribe moral beliefs. And you need moral beliefs in order to do science. You, know, you need to be honest in your reporting of science. So when it's a social project, um, there's all sorts of things indeed you need to know or rationally believe in order to do science that science itself is incapable of justifying. Things like the basic laws of logic are true. You know, I know that... Um, Uh, If Socrates is a man, and if all men are mortal, then it's necessarily true 
that Socrates is mortal. I know, I, that's just ne- a necessary truth that that follows. Um, but no amount of empirical observation can justify believing in, in a necessary truth. Um, that's the, David Hume's famous problem of, of induction. How can you go from however much particular evidence to saying this is just necessarily the case? And yet we know necessary truths. Um, we know, I think, that the world is older than five minutes old. Don't we know that? The world's older than five minutes old, isn't it? It's not possible to have empirical evidence for that belief. Now, you might say to me, oh, hang on a minute, let's chop a tree open. Then surely there are tree rings in that tree. And they grew over, you know, loads of summers. It's like, well, okay, just because you chop a tree open and it's got rings in it, how do you know that that tree didn't pop into existence five minutes ago, complete with all the rings? How do you know that? You'd have, <laughs> in order to say that the rings are evidence for old age, you'd have to assume that the universe is older than five minutes old. <laughs> um, and yet, we're all rationally believing that the universe is older than five minutes old. We all rationally believe that our memories are generally reliable. You need to rely upon your memory in order to do science, you know. What were the results of that experiment that I'm writing up? Oh, yes. Um, but hang on a minute. Maybe, maybe memory is systematically delusional so that we don't have a reliable access to the results of any experiment. How, how can we scientifically show that not to be the case? Uh, let's do some sort of experiment that would test the reliability of memory and, and write up the results that we remember. And, oh, hang on, you know... You just, You'd be relying upon the thing that you were testing in order to argue in yourself. But we, we have all sorts of rational beliefs that you have to believe in order to do science that science cannot justify. Uh, intuitions, says this writer, I'll reveal in a moment who it is, uh, denotes the most basic constituency of our, our faculty of understanding. And he says it's true in matters of ethics, it's no less true in science. Um, the traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. You just see that if Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, then it must be true that Socrates is mortal. You just, that's a, a rational intuition, so on. Uh, any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies upon intuition to find its feet. The reliance on intuition should be no more discomforting for the ethicist than it is for the physicist. Now, this doesn't sound like someone who has an, a, a scientific uh, misunderstanding of knowledge. Interestingly, this is the neo-atheist writer Sam Harris um, in his book The End of Faith. And he seems to sort of vacillate between pushing a sort of scientific understanding of reality um, as a sort of stick to club religion with, and then when he's not really thinking about clubbing religion to death, he actually seems to sort of get it, um, which is interesting. Uh, He did write a book called The Moral Landscape that, that claimed... Contrary to what I just claimed about, you know, how do we know that torturing small children for fun is wrong? We don't know it scientifically. He said, no, of course you can know it scientifically. Science can tell you morals. Um, 
the moral landscape subtitle how science can determine human values can tell you about right and wrong um, but he does say on page 37 science cannot tell us why scientifically we should value human well-being his basic argument is given the assumption that human well-being and flourishing is a good thing science can come in and tell you a lot of the answers about you know should we behave in this way or not should we torture people you know <laughs> um, science will tell you the answer uh, well yeah but only once you've made this huge philosophical non-scientific assumption <laughs> that there is some value attached to human flourishing. And you can't justify that through science. Um, so he con contradicts his own um, ethical theory explicitly uh, in his book, um, unfortunately. So as Lewis said, you cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof rests upon the unprovable, which just has to be seen. Um, and in taking that understanding of, of our position as knowers, he's much more up-to-date with contemporary philosophical thought about knowledge than the new atheists are, who are mired in this early 20th century scientism about knowledge. It thinks you know stuff by having empirical evidence for it. Everything else is just loony. Um, G.K. Chesterton, of course, was a formative influence upon Lewis. Uh, and he, in a wonderful little essay called A Plea for Popular Philosophy, um, said, you know, all sane men believe firmly and unalterably in a certain number of things which are unproved and unprovable. And he's right about that. So it's interesting to note that as an atheist, Lewis objected to this kind of scientism. And that uh, rejection of this fact-value distinction and this scientism allowed Lewis to take philosophy seriously as a way of knowing things. Um, he had to take a metaphysical arguments for the existence of God that he, that he met through friends like Owen Barfield seriously. Um, and couldn't just say, well, you know, that's silly because that's not science. That's not empirical knowledge. Um, so he took um, arguments for God seriously in a way that today's new atheists uh, <coughs> do not. So let's pause there for discussion and questions. <coughs> Yes, sir. Why do you use the term metaphysics mm. and refer to it as philosophy? <coughs> right, okay, so uh, this is a question about the meaning of, of metaphysics and its relationship to philosophy as a whole. So, um, metaphysics um, basically comes from the works of Aristotle when they were uh, giving names to the various books that Aristotle, famous philosopher, Greek philosopher, had written. And, and he wrote... Um, on topics that today would be considered under the, the rubric of, of science. So you read about physics and biology and so on. 
but there was the book that Aristotle wrote that was labelled um, before physics was his metaphysics in, in Latin, the book about how we know things beyond the material world, basically. Um, how we know about things that are beyond what science, which of course the term hadn't been coined back then, can tell us about reality. Um, so it became a term to kind of mean um, knowing about the the knowing about reality beyond the physical world, um, which then became a, a sub-discipline within philosophy. So philosophy will include things like the study of logic and argumentation, um, the um, philosophical reflections on the foundations of various dis- disciplines like aesthetics or philosophy of science, philosophy of art, etc., um, and then there's a big overlap, particularly between meta- metaphysics and areas like philosophy of mind. Because there you're into the question of, is there more to my mind than just my brain? If my mind and my brain are identical, then knowing about my mind is a scientific topic, purely scientific topic. If there's more to me than my physical self then understanding what a human being is is at least partially a philosophical, a metaphysical question. Um, And then there's also a big overlap between metaphysics and philosophy of religion, which tends to focus on questions like, are there there good arguments from uh, shared knowledge of reality to the existence of a supernatural reality, God or heaven or... what have you um, so when you start pulling a, a thread in philosophy you tend to find everything is linked to everything else uh, but yeah that's where metaphysics comes from and sort of where it situates within philosophy is the sort of broad un- umbrella term that really nowadays will mean um, trying to answer questions that science can't by thinking carefully about things uh, science used to be called, 100 years or so ago, used to be called natural philosophy. If you're a natural philosopher, you're now what we would call a scientist. Um, and it hived off into its sort of own <coughs> in, industry, as it were. Um, so, marvellous, thank you. Right. Okay. Yes, I get the joke. Oh gosh, yes, fascinating stuff. Okay. Yes. 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 Heated words were had. Yes. So, gracious me. Um, so I, I've talked about the way in which a, a scientific view of knowledge says the only way to know reality is through empirical means. Um, A.J. Eyre, who I mentioned, was associated and made popular in Britain during the 1930s, um, a view in philosophy that was even, uh, even more radical than that. 
And the view said, um, let's not think about knowing things yet. Let's talk about when, when our claims to knowing things even mean anything. When is our language meaningful? Because obviously you can use language... In, in ways outside of making meaningful truth claims about things. You can use it in nonsense poetry. You can use it in emotive ways, etc. But, but often in philosophy, we think we're, we're dealing with truth claims about reality. And so, well, is that true or not? And this movement said, let's think about what kind of conditions must language meet in order to even be meaningful to even qualify for the discussion of, well, is it true or not? It, well, first of all, it has to be meaningful. And they said, in order to be meaningful, a, a, a statement must either be true by definition, just by analysing the meaning of the term. So something like, um, you know, there are no square circles. Two plus two equals four. That's just true by definition. Um, or you could at least in principle check out the claim empirically Um, so think yourself back to 1930s no one's been to the moon yet Um, but if I make the claim the dark side of the moon is made of cheese okay well it might be a silly claim to make but it's meaningful It is a meaningful truth claim because at least in principle you could imagine it being possible that were you to find yourself in the dark side of the moon shot there by some giant cannon or something like H.G. Wells envisaged or like Wallace and Gromit on the moon you could bend down, pick up some moon with your fork and go, hmm, Gorgonzola or not. You can check it out empirically at least, at least in principle. So it's, it's a meaningful truth claim. But of course, if you said anything like um, torturing small children for fun is wrong, well, that's just nonsense. That, that doesn't mean anything. Because there's no empirical way of, getting, of checking that truth claim. Because science can't tell you about morality. So moral claims don't have a meaning. That rainbow is beautiful. Nonsense. Doesn't mean anything. God does not exist. Nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. Atheism is meaningless. So is agnosticism. So is theism. See, this kind of, basically any metaphysical truth claim under logical positivism becomes literally meaningless. It's like the bits of Jabberwocky that Lewis Carroll didn't define. <laughs> Rather than the, you know, Twas Brillig and the Slithy Toves, you know, you can look up what all those things mean, but later on in the poem, it's like, what's that? Who knows? It's meaningless. Um, so this was a very influential movement, very kind of, you seem very sceptical about us knowing truths about anything metaphysical, because it basically makes anything metaphysical a bunch of nonsense on stilts. One of the main problems with logical positivism as a theory that some philosophers started pointing out was that it's self-contradictory. Because take this truth claim. Language is only meaningful if it's true by definition or at least in principle you could check it out empirically. Okay? That's their standard for meaning. 
Is that truth claim true by definition? No. It's just, it's just an assertion. It's not true by definition, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Um, is that assertion something that even in principle you could check out using scientific method? Oh, no, it's not. So if you apply the rule to itself, it doesn't meet its own standard. According to its own standard, logical positivism is meaningless, which is a bit of a problem for a philosophical view that you want to advance, you see. Um, so people like A.J. Eyre have started saying things like, well, I'm not claiming that logical positivism is true. I'm just recommending it as a way of using language. It's like, well, you can recommend it all you like, mate, but that doesn't mean I have to use it. You know? um, I might think that the claim torturing small children for fun is wrong is so obviously true that any philosophical theory that says that claim is meaningless, there must be something wrong with it. You know? And pointing out that it's self-contradictory is a pretty good place to start when saying that an opposing viewpoint is wrong. Um, uh, A.J. Eyre, by the 1970s, was admitting um, logical positivism was false. It, it's, it, it's, it's all wrong. He, he himself went away from it. Uh, Anthony Flew, who uh, attended the Socratic Club, run by C.S. Lewis in Oxford, gave a very famous, it was the most reprinted um, philosophy paper, a very short paper called, um, about um, religion and falsification. And he kind of turned things on its, its head as a way of trying to move the discussion forward between the verificationists and the religious people uh, and said, well, let's not think about verification. What about falsification? Maybe at least there's meaning in a religious truth claim if it's open to being falsified by some sort of data. So, for example, the truth claim, there is a loving God, on the face of it, 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 that seems to be contradicted or falsified by the observation that, there, that you know, some children do get tortured and that that's wrong, that there's evil in the world. Doesn't that contradict God? And if it does, doesn't that at least mean that the claim that there is a God must be a meaningful claim rather than meaningless? So Flew saw it as a way of... of, of trying to move past this, this verificationism that said religious language is, is meaningless but by, by saying, well, if you think about falsification or if you say, you know, um, well, is, is claiming that Jesus rose from the dead meaningless if you could potentially falsify it by digging up the body? Um, famous philosopher John Hick um, actually pointed out that that say the claim, you know, that Christianity is true is open to potential verification because what if you die and you find yourself at the pearly gates shaking hands with St. Peter? Doesn't that verify <laughs> your religious beliefs? You can't verify it here and now, but maybe you could in the afterlife. And so it's meaningful. So, so the whole sort of verification thing um, fell apart. Um, flew thought that the idea of falsification showed that religious language was at least potentially meaning, meaningful. Um, and eventually, Flew himself, A, became convinced that there were adequate replies from the theist side to these uh, attempts to falsify their religious claims. 
and that uh, modern, as modern science developed and brought in information about um, Big Bang theory firming up and the information in, uh, in uh, the basis of life and so on, he thought that the evidence pointed towards some kind of a creator um, and changed his mind and, and went from being one of the most famous f- philosophical atheists of the 20th century to changing his mind and embracing some kind of theistic stroke deistic understanding of reality. Um, uh, he uh, died a, a number of years ago. He didn't become a Christian. He didn't, he didn't think God was particularly interested in us or anything like that. But he did, did think, yeah, there's, there's, not only is this God stuff taught meaningful, but there's some evidence that there's some kind of a creator. Those two sayings quite in his the book that he wrote that got the opprobrium of the New Atheists. He was very sympathetic to Christianity. And the afterward, which was very generously, was by Anti Wright. Yes. And it was very, very. Yeah. I mean, Flew was very against Islam and very sort of open towards Christianity and said things like. Uh, you know, Christianity with its combination of, of Jesus' moral teachings and the intellect of St. Paul and the, 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 the evidence around the resurrection claim is the religion to beat. <laughs> you know, that was the one he was most drawn to. He had a number of debates over the years on the resurrection with particularly Christian philosopher called Gary Habermas, who was friends with him. I think he came to you know, respect that <laughs> position. He wasn't convinced by it. Ultimately, he was, he was also a David Hume scholar and rather sceptical about m- the possibility of miracles, basically. Um, so, but yeah, he, he said interesting things and maybe, you know, who knows where, where he would have gone or has gone in his thinking now. But uh, depends upon your eschatology, doesn't it? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's right. So there's um, just take ten minutes if you want to have a little water.